0: Uh, I'm going to be preaching from uh, the book of Jude, so Revelation. Turn left, and you're at Jude, which you should know anyway. I'm going to read the whole letter, actually, just so we feel the, the weight of it. I'll pray briefly, and then we'll we'll dive in. So, the letter of Jude. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, and brother of James. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority. But left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael contending with the devil was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain, and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain, to Balaam's error, and perished in Korah's rebellion." These are hidden reefs at your love feast, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Saviour, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's pray briefly here. So all wise God, heavenly Father, gracious Father, we bless your name. We thank you for your goodness and your grace towards us, even in this last couple of days. I pray that you would continue to do a good work amongst us now through your word and by your spirit that we'd even see Christ and and behold him and be drawn to him and obey him. In his name I pray, amen. So brothers, there is a, a conflict, a war against God and against his people. And the greatest battle we are in is the battle for truth. The attack on truth has manifested itself particularly in the foundational truths of human sexuality and sexual ethics, a lot of the things that we've been talking about over this conference. And under the pressure of an immoral culture, our conclusion has too often been that the Bible is insufficient to deal with sexual turmoil, rebellion, depression or dysphoria, all these things that people experience and pursue. And so we've often adopted the world's philosophies and empty strategies instead of going to the scriptures. Moreover, the greatest threat to the Christian church occurs actually not from the outside and the culture, but from the inside. From the inside, when its own pastors and teachers deny those very truths that they've been entrusted to proclaim. And in our day, it's as if, In this cosmic war, a Trojan horse has secretly entered the evangelical city and within it are contained erroneous teachings on sexuality which actually undermine other doctrines, the doctrines of sin, the doctrine of man, the doctrine of grace, the doctrine even of the gospel itself. And so we must prepare to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. The call here in Jude. Jude tells us in this letter, number one, who must contend, number two, what we contend for, number three, against whom we contend, and number four, how we must contend. Nevertheless, he writes in the context of love. Just look at the beginning of the letter. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called Beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. And then he refers to the church as beloved in verse 3. Those to whom, he writes, are identified within the life and love of the triune God. I think that's what he's hinting at here. They are called sovereignly, supernaturally, effectually called by the Holy Spirit. They are beloved of God the Father, chosen in love by the Father. And they are kept by Jesus Christ, preserved even by the hand of the risen Christ who unfailingly died for them. So believers are called into and kept in that life and love of the triune God. And this is where it begins for us brothers, with the life and love of the triune God. And then there is this threefold prayer for mercy, peace and love to be multiplied in verse 3. He, he's, it's as if he's saying, you are beloved of God and, and so I pray for more mercy and peace and love to be extended to you so that you extend this in your ministry because you're going to need it as you contend for the faith. Because telling people to contend for the faith here is not against the idea of love. In fact, Paul tells us elsewhere, doesn't he, in 1 Corinthians that love rejoices in the truth. Love rejoices in the truth. And so Jude says, contend, contend for the faith. And so here are some lessons from Jude that I think help us to contend for the faith and particularly in the area of sexuality as I'll make some applications along the way. So lesson one, Lesson one, the, the who, we are all called to contend. That's the who. We are all called to contend. Every Christian in here, every Christian in your churches are called to contend. He is speaking to the beloved, to the church, not to a special class of Christian ninjas. You know, those Christians who got all the skills and, and can out, out-theologize and debate their opponents. Read all the books. No, not to those. It's to the one who is called, beloved, kept by the triune God. That's whom he addresses. That's you, me, that's your congregation. So contending is not about being gifted, it's about being called. If you're called, then contend you must. Now, what is it to contend? To contend, that word in Greek, Greek, epagonitsestai. It's a mouthful but you get the actual feeling of the word in there, agonize. It denotes a a wrestling, a hand-to-hand combat. Uh, It's a military or athletic term that has a sense of intense struggle, intense struggle. That's one of the reasons it's easy to turn away from contending because it hurts, it's hard, right? So if you are going to contend, you need to know the grace of God for you. You are beloved, and you need to know his supply for you. Mercy, peace, and love will be multiplied to you. It's going to be that fuel, that oxygen in your tank as you contend. So, brothers, sometimes we can get weary, especially as leaders, especially as pastors, teachers of the word. We can get weary as the culture presses in, as people in our congregations may resist. And we can then become apathetic towards this struggle for complementarian creation truths of manhood and womanhood in the face of this LGBTQ agenda. And so we need to be reminded of the necessity of the battle. Jude says it's necessary that I write to you. And we need to be reminded of the supply that we are promised from God and that some things are worth fighting for and that every Christian is called to contend. That's lesson number one. Lesson number two is we contend for the faith. That's the what. Lesson number one, the who, we all contend. Lesson number two, we contend for the faith. You see it there in the text, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. The faith, not your personal faith that you exercise, but the faith, that is the truth, sound doctrine, gospel truths. It's referred to in verse 20 as the most holy faith. So we could say the holy scriptures, the apostolic doctrine, Ephesians 2.20, the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. But all of the scriptures, and it's once for all delivered to the saints, once for all, signed, sealed, and delivered, in this word here, in this Bible. No more needed. So there is objective truth, and it's contained in this book, in the Bible, and it is sufficient. Doctrine, the Trinity, the incarnation of Christ, the doctrine of sin and grace, the doctrine of creation, a special focus on the gospel itself. Notice it is given to the saints, to the church, The church is a a pillar and buttress of the truth. So it is in here that the truth must be protected. And we can't let outside influences enter and affect our grip on this truth. Nowadays, it seems that truth doesn't matter. Authenticity matters. You know, these folks say, I'm just being authentic to my true self. As long as I'm true to my feelings, then I'm being real. There is a desire now to pursue one's own path and and, and find fulfillment through that identity. In this worldview, self-determination, expressive individualism equals true freedom and liberty. You decide who you are and what you do against God's word, against tradition, against your body. Today, one's identity lies in this self-fulfillment so that sex and sexuality isn't rooted in God's creation truth about male and female in his image and sex within the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. Hey, if we just stuck to that, we'd be okay. Just point people back to that. But, but that's not the case because we're all about self-fulfillment and, and this expressive individualism. And so sex and sexuality become for selfish pleasure, pleasure and not for God. As long as it's consensual, it's good. The connection between love and sex isn't even necessary. Only individual pleasure. Sexual feelings at the core of the identity are such that if you repress them, you repress the person. And the result then, as we've we've run along with this, is that lust runs wild and pornography is rife. Cohabitation is a cultural norm. And same-sex attraction and transgenderism are considered acceptable and morally good. But thankfully, there is the truth. There is the faith, which is true whatever you feel or anyone else thinks. They say, don't they, truth divides. Yes, it does. It divides those who will believe it from those who won't. That's how it divides. And if you don't contend for the truth, for the faith, the danger is you'll compromise the faith. And we've departed from the truth about man and woman as these fixed binary sexes created in the imago day. and thus we've assaulted the glory of God. We've slipped, and, and many have taken sex and sexuality outside of the bounds of the one flesh, holy union of marriage between a man and a woman. I'm talking about in the church. And that this meant for procreation is, is meant to lead us to adoration of Christ Christ and yet we've, we've lost that view and we've lost order in the home. Why is this? Because we've not contended for the faith. So lesson number one, we must all contend. That's the who. Lesson number two, we must all contend for the faith. That's the what. And now the why. Lesson number three, we contend because of false teachers. Look at the text for certain people have crept in unnoticed. Certain people have crept in unnoticed. The greatest and most subtle threat to the church is not persecution from the outside. It is false teachers from the inside. It's an inside job. And this is another part of what makes contending difficult and painful, agonizing. We've known these people, maybe. We've worked with them. We've, We've had them visit our churches, perhaps. We've bought their books. And yet I want us to notice three things about false teachers. Firstly, their subtlety, then their character, and then their judgment. Firstly, their subtlety. They crept in unnoticed. They've slithered in subtly like a a serpent, like the serpent in the garden. And we didn't see them coming. They are, verse 12, hidden reefs that your love feet. Like a reef, you know, below the surface of the water, waiting to shipwreck your faith. They eat with you, look like you, take the Lord's Supper with you, perhaps. Not necessarily church members, but in the church as teachers, maybe nice people even. Of course, Jesus prepares us alongside Jude when he says in Matthew 7, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. It's not obvious because that's how they get in. They don't come in saying, I'm a false teacher. Too obvious, right? Apostate false teachers will creep into the church. And that's the first thing, their, their subtlety. Next, their character. It's interesting, isn't it, that Jew doesn't specify a specific heresy, a specific false teaching as the way to spot the false teacher. He points mainly to their lifestyle, their character, they are ungodly, verse 4. And then you look at verses 14 and 16, and you see this idea of ungodly fleshed out. You can look at it later, but the number of times ungodly is mentioned. They are ungodly. They are not towards God. They are away from God. And they commit deeds of ungodliness in ungodly ways. They are boasters. See, the content of the preaching can seem okay at first, but what about the attitude of the preacher. Sometimes you can have someone come along, like to a conference like this, like myself and, and Grant, and you, you can think, oh, well, the preaching's okay, or oh, that person'd be good for, for our church, but you don't really know me. <laughs> Hopefully, Pastor David knows us enough to know there's a character there. But you need to know the character of, of the man. And is there a boasting? It might not be an obvious boasting, but it is a boasting that requires discernment to detect. They are ungodly in their character, Uh, so they're also antinomian. They pervert grace and deny the lordship of Christ, verse 4. They are antinomian, anti-law. They are licentious. They use grace as an excuse to sin, and they follow their ungodly passions, he says in verse 18, so that their lives are sensually driven. We see that reference in verse 4 and verses 10 to 12 and 16 to 18 about sensuality. And that brings us to this point, brothers. There is often, not always, often a close connection between false teachers and sexual immorality. Three examples Jesus gives from the Old Testament are heavily to do with sexual immorality. I can't go into this part so deeply, but... In verses 5 to 8, he speaks of apostate Egypt and their unbelief in the wilderness. He speaks of apostate angels who didn't stay in their proper place but rebelled. They left their place to become men, had sex with women. And he speaks of the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, which is homosexual sin, unnatural desire. That's what's in view there. And this is what the apostate false teachers are like, leaving their created position, as it were, rebelling against God's will, often with a manifestation of sexual immorality. So they are ungodly, they are antinomian, they are sexually immoral, sensually driven. And notice also that they're characterized by subjectivism. They rely on dreams, verse 8, on subjective mystical impressions. Now, at this point, the Gnostic heresy hadn't yet developed, but it it formed in the same way, as if there's a secret knowledge, a a knowledge that lies within the self and even defiles then the physical body. In such self-autonomy, we see the ancient view of Gnosticism. Gnosticism emphasizes that a person's self-awareness is different than and more important than their physical body and there's a tension between our true selves and the bodies we inhabit. So a man can identify as a woman, even if that man is a man with male chromosomes and a male physicality. And so that person then changes that habitation to suit the desires. Andrew Walker in his book, God and the Transgender Debate, says, the concept that our gender can be different from our biological sex is a modern form of the old Gnostic idea. So these old heresies come to rise up in different forms in different times. So here's what the false teachers are like. Here's their character. They are insiders who've crept in subtly and who pervert the grace and deny the lordship of Christ. They're known by their character of ungodliness and sexual immorality and subjectivism. But never forget their fate, brothers. Never forget their fate, the judgment. We must remember that if we're going to contend and not compromise, that judgment is coming for them as it did for the others, and there is no escape. Jesus destroyed Egypt. He put rebellious angels in eternal chains. He torched Sodom and Gomorrah, serving as an example of eternal fire to come. Forced teachers will not escape the judgment. Jesus will come with 10,000 angels and will judge them with all the ungodly. So I fear for the lost. I fear for the lost, but I fear even more for the apostate teachers who lead others astray. And it's a good call for us to remain faithful in our task. The first three lessons from Jude. Number one, who must contend? We must all contend. Number two, what must we contend for? We must all contend for the faith. And three, why must we contend? We must contend because of false teachers who attack the faith. So I just want to pause here uh, for some particular applications in the area of homosexuality and transgenderism. There is a a subtle and dangerous teaching that has crept into the church unnoticed, as Jude says, and in which is a perversion of the grace and denial of the lordship of Christ, that Trojan horse that's entered the evangelical city while we've all been asleep, and within that horse are these wrong teachings on sexuality which undermine key doctrines and misappropriate the gospel. It's been placarded in recent years in a a US-based conference called Revoice. Many of you will have heard of it. Revoice was an attempt to make a a way for men and women to affirm both their homosexual identity and the Christian faith, uh, coming together in that phrase, gay Christianity. Gay Christianity, quote-unquote, was promoted at the event, and it was noticed from teachers' within the church, as it were. But a Christian is called, beloved, kept by God, and so takes his or her identity from Christ and not from any sexual orient- orientation or feelings. So then to identify as a gay or LGBTQ Christian, it's an oxymoron because it uses an unholy, sinful desire as an adjective to describe then the person who is in the second person of the Holy Trinity, prefixing it with a sin that Christ hung on that tree for. And so the issue becomes clearer. This is about how we understand sin and the doctrine of man and and how we understand the power of regenerating grace and, and the way it works in the life of a believer in union with Christ. So they become then doctrines of the gospel, gospel doctrines. In this kind of teaching, we see proponents saying that there's a, a third way, if you like, to a, attempt to define an LGBTQ desire. And they say that the uninvited desire, the, just the impulse that comes up uninvited, it's is just part of the fallen condition, but it's not sinful in and of itself. I think you've had a, a workshop on this. They say it's not sinful in the sense of requiring repentance because it was uninvited. It just impulsively came up. If the desire is not then sinful, repentance can't be called for. It only needs to be, the desire only needs to be redirected. So this third way attempt is to almost sanctify gayness or transgenderism. And yet the morality of the desire is determined by the object of the desire. That's the key. The morality of the desire, whether it's sinful or not, is determined by its object. And of course, homosexual or transgender desire is sinful because the object of it is sinful. James tells us that we tempt ourselves with our own sinful desires. It's a self-temptation in that wicked alchemy of sin in the heart. So we must kill sin at desire level, not just when it's acted upon. In the mind or body, then you're slaying it at its root. It's a recognition that the sin, and this would be the same for. Think of any kind of sinful impulse that just comes up—an angry one, an envious one. Recognizing it, t- turning away from it, appropriating the blood of uh, of Christ, and and moving forward. Friends, if we embrace what God has deemed sinful, we misunderstand God and we misunderstand sin, and we dismiss God's created. Design in sex and sexuality, and we misappropriate the power and grace of the gospel. We have too low a view of of sin in relation to God, but we have too small a view of the power of Christ and the power of saving grace. So these folks, these false teachers, pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. If you are in Christ... You are not a gay Christian. You are Christian. Christian. You are free. That's so freeing. It's so freeing. Jesus is your Lord and Master, not sexual sin. Now you have the power to overcome and repent and turn and embrace who you are in union with Christ. And it might be a lifelong battle, as it is for all of us with various different sins. But you have power now. And you have a direction. LGBTQ Christian teaching is a Trojan is in that Trojan horse. And there are errors and doctrines of sin and man and grace and so on. And we, therefore, must contend for the truth. So lessons from Jude. Number one, we must all contend. Number two, we must all contend for the faith. Number three, we must all contend against false teachers who attack the faith. At the same time, at the same time, it's the sacred duty of churches, to be compassionate towards all those whom the false teachers have deceived. So then my final point and the final lesson to look at here is lesson four, how do we contend? And I'm going to look at it in two parts. How do we contend? Firstly, we need to keep ourselves in the love of God. We need to keep ourselves in the love of God. You just need to look down to verses 20 and 21 but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. We need to keep ourselves in the love of God. That's the central command there, so that we won't compromise with false teaching. Can you lose your salvation? No, because if you're saved, you are being kept by Christ, and so you'll keep yourself in the love of God, as it were, by acting as you are in your new creation. How do we do this, keep ourselves in the love of God? Well, around this central command are three in words to instruct us, building, praying, and waiting. Building, praying, and waiting, building ourselves up in the most holy faith. So we need to grow in our knowledge of the gospel, and our knowledge of the scriptures in these areas of sexuality. Abraham Kuyper once famously said that the fundamental contrast has always been, still is, and will be until the end, Christianity and paganism. Christianity and paganism. And so we see that um, as Leviticus 18 handles homosexuality, It handles it as a part of a group of pagan practices. You can read uh, the the text in uh, Leviticus 18 this afternoon, but homosexuality is listed within a list of pagan ethics, one that includes a total rejection of God's creation design, and that's the key. Paganism goes against God's creation design, killing one's children as opposed to caring for them, having sex with a member of the same sex as opposed to one's spouse, and pursuing sex with an animal as opposed to ruling over the beasts. All opposed to the teaching that we find in Genesis 1 and 2. So transgenderism is also rooted in paganism. The truth of fixed binary sexes is a a central facet of sex and sexuality in God's creation. Transgender ideology may be relatively new to our culture, but it is in fact ancient paganism. The Bible speaks directly to the instinct to take on a personal identity that doesn't correspond with one's sex. So Deuteronomy 22 and verse 5 addresses the issue, a woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak, for whoever does these things is an abomination to your God. This cross-dressing we might call transvestitism, which is under the umbrella term of transgenderism, but the exchanging of sexual identity is there. And this is associated with paganism. And yet Deuteronomy 25 is, is actually uh, built upon, if you like, in First Corinthians 11, and passage that, uh, that Grant dealt with this morning in, in depth. It, It reinforces Deuteronomy 22. Women and men should grow their hair different lengths, according to the apostle Paul. Long hair, he teaches, is a disgrace for men, but the glory of a woman. What he's getting at uh, is that natural creation distinctions should be maintained. The man and woman united in marriage must not look the same or blur their roles in marriage. Men and women are not the same and should present themselves physically as if so in culturally appropriate ways therefore by taking care to honor distinctions between the sexes we display the order of creation and so a sexual paganism is against God's creation design it is anti-wisdom it is at the heart of homosexuality and the transgender agenda But we will be able to contend against false teachings here on the topic by keeping ourselves in the love of God through building ourselves up in the most holy faith. Because building yourself up in the most holy faith, knowing the scriptures, building up, it makes you strong to contend. So build yourselves up, brothers, in doctrine and knowledge in this area. Building. Next, praying. Praying in the spirit. With a a childlike affection in the heart, the spirit cries out, Abba, Father, as we intercede and and persist and learn to plead with God, our minds are on his word and, and we gain security in his love and confidence in his word. If we're going to be teachers of the word, we must have love for the God of the word and confidence in the word of God that we might translate that by his grace to our people and build them up in the most holy faith, even as we are being built up in the most holy faith. so we keep ourselves in the love of God by praying in the spirit. How can then we not contend? Building and praying and finally waiting, waiting for the mercy of our crucified and risen and returning Lord, Jesus Christ. Brothers, we need to we need to live in eager expectation of Christ's coming. Do You live in eager expectation. Sometimes we forget that. He's coming. He's coming. And we need to keep him in view. And we need to prepare ourselves and our people for his coming, obeying him, being found in him. But knowing this one thing, when he comes and he's coming, he will be merciful to us. And you see, knowing this mercy, it keeps me in the love of God ends well for the Christian, we will contend. Contending means living out what we believe. And so we need to teach and to model biblical sexuality in our homes and churches. And so, as I've said, we present a a joyful counterculture to a crumbling secular culture and the questions they ask come your way and provide an opening to the gospel. Yes, it is dangerous. Yes, we will suffer, but you have nothing to fear. Why? You're called. You're the loved. You're kept. You're blessed. And then there's verse 24. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now, and forever. And that's how you contend, keeping yourself in the love of God, building, praying, waiting, knowing that from beginning to the end of this letter of your contending, you are secure in the love of God. You need not fear, it ends well for you. And that's the the first way, the first part of the how we contend, by keeping yourself in the love of God. The second is by extending mercy. That's the second part of the how we contend, by extending mercy. As we have been loved, so we should love. Apostate false teachers lead people astray. Remember, Jesus excoriated the Pharisees who led people astray. Blind guides, sons of the devil. But there were others he was gentler with, those who were deceived by them. And so what we need is different courses for different horses. We need pastoral wisdom here. There is a difference between the ideology and these activists of that agenda and those who have been caught in the net. Sin is still at play, of course, but there's a difference. And So to to ones caught in doubt by false teaching, verse 22, we show mercy, a a gentleness. We, We don't break a bruised reed. They might be experiencing same-sex attraction or transgender impulses, and and, and they hear biblical teaching. Uh, They're confused at this point, and maybe we need to work through it with them. Others, verse 22, need to be snatched from the fire. They need a violent wrench out of the lifestyle they're beginning to embrace. And then there are some to whom we show mercy with fear. They are entrenched in sin. The garment is stained by the flesh and we still extend mercy. But we must be aware that we don't become soiled with their sin as we get close and and then begin to accept it and compromise with it. And you brothers will know as you've gone into deep counseling issues where there's folks who have been entrenched with sin, we need to be on our guard that we don't compromise with that as we go in deep, still extending mercy. Love for those who are caught in sin does not exclude hatred for the corruption of that sin. And so we must have a deep concern that we shouldn't be led astray by false teachers and an extraordinary sense of mercy and love, the love of Christ to us that we need to extend to others. Who must contend? We must all contend. What must we contend for? We must all contend for the faith. Why must we contend? because of false teachers and their teaching. How must we contend? We must first keep ourselves in the love of God, building, praying, waiting. And secondly, we must extend mercy as we've been shown mercy. So we contend and we show compassion to those who confess lust problems or homosexual, transgender identities and lifestyles. To do this, you need to know the scriptures. You need to know the faith you contend for. You need to be men of prayer. You need to keep your own life on track in view of Christ's coming. Knowing you've received mercy, you extend that mercy, but you need different courses of mercy for different horses stuck in sin. Some are confused and need a gentle approach. Some are about to burn to death and need a violent wrench. Some are deeply entrenched and lost in sin, so down you go, hating the sin but intent on affecting them with grace. So there is a war. There's a war against God and his people. And there's a Trojan horse filled with doctrinal error in the evangelical city. Jude gives us some lessons, but Jesus has died to purchase his bride. He is risen and interceding for her at the Father's right hand, and he will return to bring her home. Jesus Christ will build his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail. They will not prevail. Forget the Trojan horse. Jesus is coming on a white horse. We just need to go one book further into Revelation. He's coming on a white horse. His eyes are aflame. There's a sword coming from his mouth. Wrath for the, his enemies, victory for his bride. He is a shepherd who walks among his church now, even as we see that, that, that picture in the, in, the, in the seven churches and, and the letters at the beginning of Revelation. But when he comes on that horse... On his robe and on his thigh is written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus wins, and so we worship him. And in the meantime, till he comes and takes us home, or we go to be with him, we stay faithful as men of God, as pastors and leaders, and we contend for the faith. Let's pray. So, Father, indeed, help us here today. Help us particularly uh, as pastors and leaders, as, as men of God, called even to the ministry to contend for the faith in the way that is prescribed in the scriptures, uh, let us go away from this place, encouraged with all that we've learned and, and the brotherhood that we've had and, uh, and thankfulness in our heart for, for the local church, even as it's been expressed here uh, amongst us. And uh, I do pray for the preservation of the church here, of this ministry and conference. Um, and ask that you would multiply uh, mercy, peace, and love uh, to us individually and to this place, even as we see this place filled with pastors even next year. And I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.